is a piece of cake. <laughs> to stand out. You notice me. Red Rocks Young Adults, how we doing tonight? Yeah, all right. One guy's awesome. Great, bro. That's awesome. Um, well, hey, you guys. Welcome to Young Adults tonight. Um, let's see. You guys seem sprightly tonight. I can just tell. You seem sprightly. What movie is that from? Anybody? No, it's not. It's from Forgetting Sarah Marshall, but that's okay because that was a test to see if you guys have been watching rated R movies as Christians, and you have not been, which means you can still follow Jesus tonight. So I don't have to even preach anything tonight, so we're good to go. That was sarcasm to the max, by the way, just in case you did not get that. All right, let me tell you the gist of the night real quick, and then we will pray, and then we will get going, all right? So here, I titled the name of this sermon, Slow Down. Space, and remember, and another space with another breathe out after that. And here's what I mean by that, because you and I currently live in a culture where everybody moves at 100 miles an hour all of the time, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to build our reputations, and consequently of that, and ironically, we've got a culture that's full of exhausted, overwhelmed, stressed out, and quite frankly, miserable people who are searching for their identity in a ton of places and keep coming up, up short with that, with their identities. And what we're going to do tonight is look at David from the Bible. David is my favorite guy of all time from the Bible. You might recognize that name from David and Goliath. David, uh, he fought bears and lions and killed them when he was a teenager. David was the king of Israel. David is in every way that you could possibly think of cooler than me and cooler than you. And he is in every way that you could possibly think of also a misfit, and rest and identity go hand in hand, and David is going to teach us this tonight. So let's pray real quick, and then we'll get going, all right? Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for tonight. Um, I thank you for this ministry and all of the incredible things that you've already done through this ministry and the stories um, that you've made through each of the people sitting in this place tonight, God. And, and I just pray two things tonight, Jesus. I pray that you'd use me, that this would not be about me, it would be about you. And number two, I pray that all of us would come to know you in a deeper in more intimate way tonight, God. You say sometimes all we have to do is ask, and so tonight we ask, God, we want to know you more. So we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so here's what we're gonna do right now. I want you guys to close your eyes just for like 10 seconds. Nobody's gonna punch you in the face, I promise. Just close your, close your eyes and answer this question. What do you think your reputation is? The Urban Dictionary defines reputation as your character as seen or as judged by other people. So what do you think other people think of you? What do you think they say about you? All right, you can open your eyes now. So unfortunately, this is probably not the very first time that you've asked yourself this question. I think I'd be daring enough even to say that um, you might have been haunted subconsciously with this question for your entire life. And I'm the exact same way because we're human beings and human beings are obsessed with what other human beings think about them and with what other human beings are saying about them. And that's just the way it is. And honestly, guys, I have a lot of struggles and I never wanna be um, secretive about any of those struggles, especially in front of you. I just think church works much better when we all acknowledge the fact that we are broken people who can't fix ourselves, who need a savior. You know, the church is not a museum of shiny and pretty people that we can all come in and ooh and ah at. You know, the church is a hospital for people who know that they are sick, 
for people who know that they are broken. At least that's what Jesus says. I tend to go with what Jesus says. And so with that said, my biggest struggle, and I'm going to be open and upfront with you guys about, about this tonight, is not drinking. It's not lust. It's not like one of the biggies that we highlight in church very often. My deepest struggle, like at the core of me, deep down in my heart where I am fractured the most, is I care so much about what other people think of me. And with every bone in my body, I hate it. I hate how much I think about what other people are thinking of me. Like even right now, I'm thinking about what are you guys thinking of me? Like I was nervous backstage waiting to come out here, not because I'm nervous about this material or what I'm going to say, but, but I'm like, what will they think of me in light of what I just told them? Will my sermon be good enough? Will it be funny, but not too funny? Will it be serious enough? Will I use enough scripture in it? What are these people going to think of me? Will they notice the new watch that I just got? Will they know, like, you know what I mean? I got it. Thank you. <laughs> Will they be impressed with me? Will my bosses be impressed with me? How is my reputation doing? And I was trying to figure out like, okay, when exactly did that start happening in my life? Because little kids don't care what other people think about them. Like when I was six, I cared about three things, baseball, swimming in the pool, and popsicles. And that was it. <laughs> Nothing else. I cared about nothing else. I'm like, when did all of a sudden I start to become obsessed with my reputation? And I remember a day in fourth grade when I came home from school and I turned on the TV and this cartoon was on Nickelodeon for the very first time. Anybody seen that? Yeah. I'd argue to this day as a 26-year-old man that this is one of the best TV shows that has ever been on TV. And do you know who the dude in the top left is with those goggles and the helmet? Otto. Otto, and Otto was awesome at everything. Otto was like the best surfer, the hardest skater, the fastest snowboarder in the world, despite the fact that he was nine, you know? And now that I'm older, I can look back and understand how ridiculous that concept was. But, you know, whatever. At the time, I was sold. Autumn was awesome. Everybody knew who Otto was because of the things that he could do, and I wanted that. I wanted people to look at me and think two things. Number one, Doug is cool. And number two, Doug doesn't care that I think he's cool even though I would. That's what I wanted people to think of me. And so fourth grade, I bought a skateboard and I said, I'm gonna be like Otto and I'm gonna have a reputation of being the best skater. And I practiced really, really hard at it and it lasted for a year and then it was over because I sucked <laughs> at skating. Like I could like Ollie off of the curb, you know, but that's, that's all I could do. So I retired my skateboard after a year and then fifth grade came around and rather being the skater kid, I took on a new persona and I know this is gonna sound funny, but in fifth grade, I was the, uh, the animal guy in my class. And this was back in the day when like zoo books were all the rage and the more zoo books that you had, the cooler you were. And I had all of the zoo books and I had all of them memorized. And on top of that, I got like, I got a pet lizard and I brought it to class every Friday. And if you had a lizard in elementary school in California, like you might as well have been Ryan Gosling. That's how cool you were. And then recess would come around on Fridays and I'd go post up next to the basketball court and I would like teach like a reptile class on snakes and lizards and frogs. And there'd be like 20 kids, half of which were girls, a few of which were sixth grade girls that would be around just like listening to me teach them about reptiles. And I remember thinking like in that moment, I'm like, it is impossible for a human being to get cooler than I am right now at this moment. Like, I have arrived. I am the Steve Irwin of my fifth grade class. <laughs> and that's not too soon. I honor Steve by loving him and wanting to be like him. Steve made getting nerdy about animals cool. And we will forever remember him for that. Love you, Steve. And so that was fifth grade, but then my lizard died. Thank you. <laughs> We're good. 
I got all my tears out before this, don't worry. So my lizard died and I was no longer the animal guy. In sixth grade, I became the funny kid in class and I had my very first crush on a girl named Ashley Breen and my new life goal became getting Ashley to notice me by telling jokes and being the funny guy. And it, it, you know, it kind of worked, but all the, work I put into, all the work I put into it was useless because at the end of my sixth grade year, my family moved my brother and I to Colorado and so I had to kiss that identity goodbye. And so in high school, came around and my brother and I were like, well, let's get guitars and start a band because there is nothing cooler than starting a crappy high school band. And so we went out and we bought guitars. I had to mow like 20 lawns, no, not 20, like 200 lawns in order to buy this guitar. And I practiced like crazy and my new goal became this. I want to be the funny stand-up guitar player, front man in a band like Tom DeLonge of Blink-182. And every fiber in my being wanted to be that guy. And I practiced and I started cussing you know, and I just was a punk in every way that you could imagine until my junior year came around and I heard Switchfoot for the very first time and I'm like, you know what? You get more girls if you're like the deep, sensitive, emotional guitar player. So I kissed the Blink-182 dreams behind and then I just started practicing like crazy. I wanted people to think that I was like the artistic musician, you know, I grew my hair out to my shoulders until one day my dad was like, you look like an idiot, please get your hair cut. And if you're, a if you're a dude in here and you have long hair, that's not a knock on you, this is personal. I looked awful. I wish I had a picture that I could bring in to show you guys. Just imagine me with long hair. I don't look good with long hair. So I thanked my dad after that for doing that to me. And then my senior year started, so short hair Doug started lifting and I tried out for the football team. I made the football team and I did good at it. And so suddenly I was the athletic guy who didn't really care that he was the athletic guy because his real passion was his music and his band and his guitar and my facial hair started to come in, you know, but not really well. It was not thick. It was whatever the opposite of thick is, unthick, thin, you know, stringy. And I had these really awful sideburns that I should never have had, but I had them for identity's sake, and I wish so badly I could go back to my 12th grade self and punch him in the face and explain to him all the reasons that he is not cool. Like, really, I wish so badly that I could do that. And then I graduated high school, and I went to college, and I spent another year being the guitar guy, except this time it was the Jack Johnson version of the guitar guy, because everybody knew I was from California, and I wore flip-flops everywhere I went, even through the snow, which was miserable, but I did it for my identity, and I played banana pancakes probably 200,000 times my freshman year. Yeah. This is me. This is me being honest with you guys. And then my sophomore year came around, and like a lot of students, I found my identity in my major and in all the pre-med stuff that I was doing. And then my junior year came around and it was partying and it was living with the guys in the cool house that threw all of the biggest parties. And then I met Jesus. And everybody knows that once you become a Christian, all of this reputation nonsense is behind you, right? <clears throat> No, if anything, you become a Christian and your world is opened up to like hundreds of more identities that you can take on. And I'm not even going to go into that, all right? But it doesn't stop and it doesn't stop after you graduate college either. For the rest of your life, this curse of an identity will follow us everywhere it goes. We are defined by our job titles and how well we are doing at our job or how bad we are doing at our job or if we're unemployed, you know, or if we go to the gym and we're in good shape, but we want people to think that we don't care that we're in good shape, we just go because it's healthy, you know? And part of that's true, but we go also because we want people to think that we look good and people to know that we lift weights. Or we're defined by our relationship statuses. If you're single or if you're, if you're engaged, you know, who's your boyfriend? Who's your girlfriend? And then we get married and it's it's who's your wife or who's your husband? Are you a good wife? Are you a good husband? Can you cook? Can you, good, can you cook well? These are, 
These are things that define you. What's your job? What's your title at your job? Are you quote unquote successful? How much money are you making? And so it follows us for the rest of our lives. And so it's worth talking about tonight because while all of these things that I'm talking about and I'm kind of poking fun at, they're all good. They're all great things and they're all blessings and gifts from God. But when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing in your life, it becomes a bad thing. When you take a good thing and you make it your identity, it will crush beneath the weight that you put on it and it will leave you feeling frustrated. There is one identity that will never fail you and we're gonna talk about it tonight and this is why I love David so much because he was completely free of all of this reputation garbage. He really was. Like at the core of David, he knew that his reputation, that his identity and who he was was completely based off of who God said he was and not what other people said that he was and not what he said that he was. And, and sometimes I read about David and I'm like, man, I just like imagine sometimes what it could be like for me to be completely free of what people think about me and what people say about me and to truly not care. Like it seems so far off for me. I feel like I'd feel 20 physical pounds lighter than I do now if those chains just fell off my wrist. And so we're gonna read about David tonight. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you don't have your Bibles, pull out your phone if you have the Bible app or it'll be up on the screens. I think it's really cool for some reason to actually read it in my lap while the dude on stage is talking about it. So you can see, okay, he's not making this up. This is right here in my Bible too. Like for real, when I started doing that, things started to change for me. So maybe just something to think about, you know. So while you're going there, let me give you a little bit of background about what we're about to read. So 1,000 years before Jesus, roughly, 950 years before Jesus, something like that, there was a guy named Saul, and Saul became the very first king of Israel. But Saul was disobedient to God in a lot of different ways, and so slowly God started to reject him. And slowly God said, okay, you're not gonna do this my way. I can lead a kingdom without you. I'm God. I don't need you. I can find somebody else. And so God started searching for somebody else, for a man who was after his own heart. And so God comes to Samuel the prophet, who first Samuel's named after, and second Samuel. This Bible stuff's not that hard. See? <laughs> he comes to Samuel the prophet and tells him to go to Bethlehem to find a guy there named Jesse because he says he has chosen one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel says, okay, and he goes into Bethlehem and he invites Jesse to meet up with him and to bring all of his sons along. And so Jesse shows up with seven out of the eight of his sons, excited to see who Samuel's gonna pick. And so here we go, we pick up in verse six right here. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. So I imagine Eliab, the oldest in the family, as this like Brad Pitt kind of guy, good looking guy, in shape guy that you'd imagine being the starting quarterback of like a good division one football team. So not CU, but like Alabama or something like that, you know? And Samuel sees him and he goes, this is him. This guy looks like a future king. This is him. But verse seven says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks after the heart. Looks can be deceiving, I guess, because Samuel, the wise old prophet Samuel gets it really wrong here. 
And I think there's a lesson in here for all of us in just these two verses, because as human beings, I think we miss a lot of the God potential in the people around us because we are too impressed with the wrong indicators, with the things on the surface, which is why misfits like David at times can fly under the radar and go by unrecognized. Let me prove that to you even more. So Jesse was from the tribe of Judah, and in Jesse's lineage, 1,000 years after Jesse would live, in the same town of Bethlehem, a baby would be born in a manger, and that baby's name would be Jesus. Jesus would be the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus, believe it or not, was a misfit. Jesus could have flown under the radar just like David did. And that's not blasphemy to say that Jesus was a misfit. Like, read the New Testament. Everything about him stood out from the crowd. Everything about him was a misfit. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 through 3 say this. He had no beauty, and this is prophecy about Jesus years before Jesus was even born. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's Jesus. So when Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah that they had been waiting for, finally did appear, the world did not recognize him because much like Samuel, the world was looking for the wrong indicators. The world was looking for what was on the surface. But while the world rejected him, and Jesus was a misfit, God used Jesus not only to change the world, but to to save the entire world. Jesus was a misfit. I just thought that was cool. Something for you to chew on this week. Take that with you. We'll get back to the story. So the rest of Jesse's sons who were present now pass in front of Samuel the prophet. And here we go. We pick up in verse eight right here. Then Jesse called Abinadab, I think that's how you say that, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. So when Samuel showed up and told Jesse that one of his sons is going to be anointed as the next king of Israel, Jesse, David's own dad, doesn't even consider the fact that maybe it's David. Maybe it's his youngest. And he doesn't even call for him. So David, the youngest in the family, the runt, the misfit, was out in the fields in the mountains where he always was doing the simple task of taking care of his dad's sheep. And here's a quote that I read from a commentary yesterday. It apparently does not occur to anyone in Bethlehem that the little shepherd boy could possibly be God's choice. He is so unlikely to be used of God in so powerful a way that his own father does not see any reason to interrupt David's menial task of tending the sheep. But God often turns things upside down, and it's a common theme in the Bible that God uses the youngest or the weakest or the misfits to carry out his plans and change the world. So they send for David, and David comes and stands in front of Samuel. And when David's in front of Samuel, God says to Samuel, he says, this is my guy. 
right here. This is the man who has captured my heart. I look at things underneath the surface because no matter how many outward characteristics or gifts somebody might have, those don't do me a lot of good if that man or that woman is not after my own heart and is not on the same page as me. But David is. David is a man after my own heart. His identity is not found in the things that he just happens to do. His identity is not found in what other people, including his brothers and including his dad, say about him. His identity is found solely in me, and apparently, God likes that. Apparently, God thinks that's awesome enough to be like, David, you're my guy. You're the next king of Israel. And so here's the question. If God is after men and women who are after his own heart, then how do we become that? How do I become that? How do you become that? So I thought We'd answer that by thinking about how David did it, because obviously there are a thousand different answers to that question. How do you become a man or a woman after God's own heart? David lived one of these things out in a very, very cool way that I want to look at tonight. What David did and how he lived it out to enable him to solidify his identity in God in his heart was this. David grew up, and David spent the majority of his time in the fields and in the mountains with nothing but himself and a little guitar-like instrument called a lyre, his slingshot, and a bunch of sheep. And that was his life. And David, on those journeys into the mountains by himself with nothing but sheep and God, learned his identity as a man. He didn't need other people around him to affirm that in him. And all the noise and all the clamor of this world and all the voices around him to tell him what his identity was and who he was. He had God to do that. And he had a wonderful gift that a lot of us don't have because we are constantly plugged in to the rest of the world, constantly available to everybody at all times. And David had a wonderful gift in that sense because he didn't have that. He had the solitude. And in those times of solitude, when he cried a lot and he sat under those stars around a dying fire with nothing around him but sheep, David found out that he was a man and that he was a man of God, a son of God. And there's a book called A Tale of Three Kings by a guy by the name of Gene Edwards, one of my favorite books of all time. And it highlights a lot of the time that David spent in those fields by himself. And so I want to read just a quick passage to you guys right here. Once, while singing his lungs out to God, angels, sheep, and passing clouds, he spied a living enemy, a huge bear. He lunged forward. Both found themselves moving furiously towards the same small object, a lamb, feeding at a table of rich green grass. Youth and bear stopped halfway and whirled to face one another. Even as he instinctively reached into his pocket for a stone, the young man realized, why, I am not afraid. Meanwhile, brown lightning on mighty fury legs charged at the shepherd with foaming madness. Impelled by the strength of youth, the young man married rock to leather, and soon a brook smooth pebble wind through the air to meet that charge. A few moments later, the man, not quite so young as a moment before, picked up the little lamb and said, I am your shepherd and God is mine. And that last sentence, of course, is a quote straight from one of the most famous Psalms ever, Psalm 23, which was written by David, probably when he was younger than any of us are, on one of his journeys into the mountains to look after his dad's sheep when he started that. And this is Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. It might say that in your Bible too. 
The Lord is my shepherd. The shepherd is all I need. All I need to do is focus my eyes on the shepherd and he'll take care of me. All I need to do is just try my best to follow my shepherd because he is gonna tell me who I am. He's gonna give me everything that I need. And if God's our shepherd, then what does that make us, you guys? Sheep. Do you have any idea how uncool sheep are? Do we have a picture? There's. If you go to CSU, I'm not trying to knock on your mascot. I'm just trying to make a biblical case here. That might have stung some of you, and I apologize. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Did you guys know if you're a shepherd and you don't lead your sheep to water, they literally will not drink? <laughs> like, that's like humbling to me to think that in the metaphor, I'm a sheep, you know? And I don't think that's God trying to make fun of us. I think that's just him saying, look, I am your shepherd and I know what you need and you need to stop listening to all of these other voices and trying to be what the world says that you should be. You need to follow me. I know exactly what you need. I'm your shepherd. Do not worry. I'm gonna take care of you. And it's when you get away, like David was constantly and like we need to fight for because we live in a much more noisy culture. David got away in that solitude and in those moments, like I said, around that dying fire at night under those stars, I just picture him there with his sheep. And that's where he heard it. That's where he would hear God say, David, you're my son. David, this is all the identity you need. David, I've got you taken care of. Listen to what I'm saying, David. And so rest and your identity go hand in hand because it's in those times of rest that you're reminded or God reminds you that who you are is what Jesus has done for you. Who you are is what Jesus has done for you. Who are you? I'm saved by Jesus. That's who I am. I am a son or I am a daughter of the king because I am saved by Jesus. Therefore, everything else just happens to be what I do or where I go to school or what I study or what I look like, but those things are not who I am. There's a movie that came out when I was in sixth grade called Brink. Yeah, so you guys have seen that. Everybody in the world wanted to be a skater after Brink came out. And I'm on that. But uh, Andy Brinker, he was the main character in that story. And Andy um, was known for being awesome at skating, and that was his identity. And that's, more importantly, what he thought his identity was. And uh, he was obsessed with it so much that that's what it became in his heart. And I'm not going to explain the whole movie, but because it's a movie, there's conflict that comes in because there has to be conflict to have resolution. And at the very end of the movie, Andy finds himself in the garage one night having a conversation with his dad. And I'm going to paraphrase this because I don't really remember. I remember enough to get the gist, but this is what Andy tells his dad. He says, Dad, I messed up a lot of things with my friends. And I did a lot of things that I shouldn't have, and it was all completely rooted in the fact that I just wanted to be somebody, Dad, because I feel like a nobody. I feel like that's my identity, and Ben, you guys can come back out. I feel like I'm a nobody, and I just want to be somebody. And in a cool, kind of cheesy moment, his dad looks at him, and he says this, Andy, skating, and some of you might remember this exact scene, Andy, skating is what you do. It's not who you are. You are Andy Brinker, you are a good son, and you are a good friend who just happens to skate. And tomorrow, if you wake up and you never skate again, you are still going to be Andy Brinker, my son that I love and that I'm proud of. And in sixth grade, I just kind of laughed that part off and was like, all right, let's get to the skating. Let's get to the 360s. 
<laughs> but now that I think about it, that lines up like pretty brilliantly with the heart of God. Because for Andy, he had that conversation with his dad in a garage one night. But for you and me, we can have that conversation with our Heavenly Father anytime and as many times as we want to, where God can remind you that your job is what you do. Your schoolwork is what you do. What you look like is what you look like. Your friend group is your friend group. And those things are great, but none of those things are who you are. Who you are is my son, and who you are is my daughter. And if you remember correctly, God paid a, paid a pretty big price to buy that identity for you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says this. It says, Jesus Christ chose you in him before the creation of the world, which means once upon a time, there was no world. Once upon a time, there was no universe. It was just God and nothing else. That's Genesis chapter one, verse one. The very first verse in the Bible that says, in the beginning, comma, God, meaning God and nothing else. And in that moment, God said, I choose Doug Weckenman. He's not alive yet. I haven't even created time yet, but I'm about to. I'm about to get some planets going around in circles and a sun and a earth that should take roughly 365 days to revolve around that sun so we can get some years and we can get some months going. And as soon as June 20th, 1988 comes around, Doug Weckenman will physically be alive. And it'll be about another 20 years of him chasing after all of these identities before he finally gets exhausted enough and falls flat on his face and realizes that I'm real and I've already taken care of the identity thing for him. But regardless, I choose him right now. And then later on in verse 13, it says this, once you believed in him that you were, quote unquote, included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, given a new identity that has nothing to do with you. Because as soon as you decided that this whole Jesus thing was real, as soon as that clicked in your heart and you said, I'm gonna follow Jesus, you were marked with a seal, a seal that seals the deal that your new identity is a son or daughter of the king. I am not Doug Weckenman, Red Rocks guy. I'm not Doug Weckenman, missionary guy. I'm not Doug Weckenman, the guy who cares too much about what other people think of him. I'm not Doug Weckenman, wannabe John Foreman, guitar player. I am Doug Weckenman, son of God, marked with a seal, saved by Jesus Christ, nothing more and nothing less. And so here's the takeaway of the night, because what we've learned from the misfit David is that solidifying your identity in God comes from resting with him away from all the noise and the clatter and the fast-pacedness of our lives. And so what is that for you? That's my question for you. What does that look like for you? Because David, for David, it was tending sheep in the mountains. I'm looking around and I'm guessing we don't have a lot of sheep herders in here tonight. So what does it look like for you in 2014? And it might still be the mountains. Come on, that's the best place to get away. This is Colorado. What does it look like for you to get away from all the clamor and all the voices telling you who you are? Is that working out? Is that going to the gym or going on a run? Does that do that for you? Is it doing that, catch this, without headphones? Call me crazy. Without headphones? Is it sitting in silence for once in your life or playing guitar? Is it cooking or baking some banana bread? That sounds good. Is it snowboarding? Is it yoga? Me, Connor, and Whitney did yoga about two hours before service tonight. We were a little stressed out and ran upstairs and got away and did some P90X yoga. Heck yeah. And it got, got us away from everything that we were worried about and focused on tonight. A little chance just to be quiet and have God just say, hey guys, I got tonight, by the way. You don't have to worry about it. 
What is it for you? And how do you engage with God while you're doing those things? Because for David, he sat in the mountains underneath those stars around the fire with his sheep, but he could have chosen not to engage with God in those moments. You can go work out, you can go on a run, you can go journal, you can go do a quiet time, you can drive in your car and blast worship music and not engage with God. So what is it for you and how do you engage with God in those moments? How do you intentionally pursue God and engage with him? Because there's no secret that quiet and solitude is big in the Bible. Jesus didn't command the Sabbath just for fun, you know? Jesus knew we were gonna need that. Jesus was the most wanted guy in the world during the 30, 32 years that he walked around on this planet and he found time every single day to get away from all that noise, to get into the quiet and spend time with his father, not just once, but every single day. Every single day Jesus did that. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the vine and you are the branches. In me, if you remain in me, I'm your shepherd. If you remain in me, I'll tell you what you need. I'll lead you to what you need. I'll lead you by those still waters, like he says in Psalm 23, and I'll make you lie down in those green pastures so you can lie down and you can be made to lie down because I know that's what you need. Follow me. I am your shepherd because while the world's going 1,000 miles an hour, and as soon as you guys walk out of here tonight, you're gonna be going 100 miles an hour once again. And the world says, you need to do this, and you need to be this guy. You need to be this girl. You need to get this amount of success, and you need to go here. You need to go there. The world is also full of millions of miserable people. And so maybe the creator was onto something when he said that we need rest, that we need to find that solitude. And maybe we can take a lesson from the misfit David tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much uh, for tonight. I, uh, I know all too well that as soon as we walk out these doors, it's back to life. Um, and I don't want these words and this challenge to fall away um, like so many other sermons and church events do as soon as we leave them. Um, and there's only one way that's not gonna happen, God, and that's if you help us to remember and you help us to slow down. And like you say in Psalm 23, if you make us lie down in those green pastures, God, and you lead us beside of those still waters and remind us, Jesus, every single day that we are your sons and that we are your daughters and that is all that matters. Misfits believe that they're your sons and daughters while the rest of the world does not. Help us be misfits like David was. We love you so much and pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.